Welcome to the Nonprofit Lab, a podcast dedicated to the ongoing discovery of how we can all be a part of bigger social change through the lens of the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Puya Porak. I'm an industrial engineer, yogi, and CEO of MatchNice, a social impact tech startup with a mission to connect the nonprofit ecosystem and maximize social impact. And right now, we're working to launch a new kind of impact-centric fundraising platform that empowers nonprofits and donors to tie online donations directly to social impact. Join us on our startup journey as we look to uncover and shake up the status quo in the world of nonprofits. On today's episode, I speak to Dr. Laura Otten, and we ask the big landscape level questions about the nonprofit sector. What's going on? Where are we now? Where did we come from? And where do we need to go in order to maximize social impact? We talk about things like the professionalization of the nonprofit sector, its history, challenges, and the importance of impact measurement and the different levels of magnification when it comes to making an impact. Dr. Laura Otten is the founder and director of LaSalle University's Master of Science in Nonprofit Leadership and a tenured member of LaSalle's faculty. She was the executive director of LaSalle's Nonprofit Center from 2001 through May of 2021, having begun her affiliation with the center shortly after it was formed in the early 80s. Working as a consultant and instructor primarily in the areas of governance, strategic planning, coaching, and program evaluation. She continues to serve as a consultant and instructor with the Nonprofit Center and is a national expert in numerous aspects of nonprofit management and governments. Her weekly blog, Nonprofit University, which ran for over 15 years until it was discontinued in 2021, was read in over 155 countries. And prior to joining the staff of the Nonprofit Center, Laura served as the director of LaSalle's Criminal Justice Program, Women's Studies Program, and Project on Justice and Society. She gained tenure in 1988 and has been recognized for distinguished teaching. Laura also has several publishing credits, including the book Women's Rights and the Law, and she earned her master's and doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania and her bachelor's from Sarah Lawrence College. Here's my conversation with Laura. Well, hi, Laura. Welcome to the Nonprofit Lab. How's it going? Good. How about yourself? Great. Um, I've been really excited about this episode, and you know it's been in the making for quite some time. Our esteemed first guest, it's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, I'm honored to be the first guest. (laughs) Exciting to be the first guest. Well, You've spent over 50 years working in the nonprofit sector, and I say that with the greatest respect. What drew you in and what's kept you inspired? It's a great question. What drew me in was easy. It was the way I was brought up, um, you know, to to give back. I've been volunteering since I was probably, uh, you know, that expression of knee high to a grasshopper, but I've been volunteering 
um, with um, a parent or two. And then, you know, when I was of age to do it by myself, I um, did it by myself, obviously, or with groups. And it just never seemed like there was another option, but to work in the sector that tries to um, make life better for all of us. Um, what has kept me going over all of these years is two things. Um, one, pursuing my individual passions. So working in this particular nonprofit with that mission or that not particular nonprofit with another mission. And then the idea of um, what really has driven me for the last 30 plus years, I would guess, is how do we empower and enhance the ability of the sector as a whole? How do we strengthen the individual parts so that we have a stronger, bigger whole so that it can do even better work? I firmly, firmly believe that the sector is the strength of the combination of its parts and that each individual nonprofit should be worrying not just about itself, but also how it's contributing the sector as a whole. I love that premise. And I, I think it's part of why we get along so well, because as you know, like the, the idea and the premise behind Match Nice has been looking at the nonprofit sector as a charitable supply chain and how do we get the sector to work better, better together to maximize impact. It's in our mission. And it's so cool to see that reflected in your own mission and your own why for being in this space. I, I do think to your, your first comment, I do think it's why um, what you were telling me when we first met about your idea for Match Nice resonated so much. Um, is because it is much more of a holistic look at the sector and it sees it as, it sees each individual as a piece of that larger whole. And I think it does recognize by helping people think differently about, about an individual organization, you're helping them think differently about the whole sector. And I think that's really important. Well, it's really humbling to be here with you three years or so after that first conversation. And for those that may not know, after I had the initial spark for Match Nice, this impact-centric fundraising platform for nonprofits, I went on a journey of discovery and Dr. Otten's door was the first one that I knocked on and she welcomed me in and uh, has been a guide and an advisor to our company since. So uh, really, really feel privileged to have you in our corner. And uh, Laura, throughout your journey, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the nonprofit sector since you've started? I think without a doubt, the biggest change is the professionalization of the sector. That doesn't mean that it's reached all pieces of the sector. I mean, there are still very, very much um, non mom and pop nonprofits around, but the, um, the professionalization is without a doubt the biggest change. I mean, going back to the middle of the last century, um, so much of the nonprofit sector was run by, and I'm saying this very intentionally, the wives of corporate executives, of lawyers, of doctors, and they were there doing their good work so that their husbands could climb up the ladder. And, um, you know, not to diss all of those women, um, this wasn't their profession, this was their avocation. And so they were doing it as a, a side gig. And as the sector grew and as people started to appreciate what the sector could actually do, 
we started um, the professionalization of the sector. You know, back in the 1950s and 1960s, there wasn't a, a major that you could select in nonprofits in college. There weren't master's degrees, there weren't doctorate degrees. And, you know, in the, the last quarter of, of the last century, that's when all of that began to, to flourish and develop. And one of the one of the hallmarks of what makes a profession a profession is that it has a unique body of knowledge um, that is shared with those who are in it. And as we have professionalized the sector and brought in people who are truly experts in the sector and who understand the power of the sector, we, we've seen the we've seen it grow, we've seen it strengthen, we've seen it be more successful. I think accompanying that, that shift and one of the other big changes um, and very much a parallel change, though it was in some respects slower to catch on, was the recognition that nonprofits are businesses and that the name of nonprofit is misleading to people, that they think they can't make a profit, that they're not about money. They're not about money as the mission, but they are about money as the vehicle for allowing them to achieve the mission and fulfill those mission promises. And so I think the recognition that um, folks understand that if you're in a nonprofit, you are working for a business. It's just a mission-driven business. Um, when I started 30, 40 years ago saying to folks, oh, well, nonprofits are a business, you know, there was this shock. Um, what do you mean we're a business? We're a nonprofit. And nowadays when I say it, most of the heads in the room are already shaking. Yes, we, we get it. Um, and I think those are two different changes, but they're very much interrelated. And um, I think each of them has made a powerful, powerful difference in, in the sector. I think we might be on the cusp of seeing another major change, but I, I don't know if we're going to get there. We'll That's see. My next question was actually going to ask if, if we've kind of come over the last uh, many decades to this point of nonprofit sector being very professionalized, where do you see that trend going next? Like what is the next step for the professionalization of the sector? Certainly from my research and, and my discovery, I think there's still a lot of digital adoption that is left oh. to be done in the space for sure. But uh, beyond that, what else do you see? Um, you know, at, you're, you're totally, totally right about the digital adoption. And if folks weren't aware of that before, I think the pandemic has absolutely exposed it. You know, if we want to talk about a digital divide, we certainly saw the impact of the digital divide with nonprofits and the, the pandemic. I think um, going back to what I said, that there is this recognition that we are a business, there are still best practices from the business world that we need to embrace fully. And one of those is marketing. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I, another reason that I, I like um, Match Nice is because it helps them think about marketing. And so that even if they don't have, as most nonprofits don't, a dedicated marketing professional, the way you've structured it and the way you help them, it helps them think about their, their marketing. So I think we, we do have to um, do a lot better job and, and pay much more attention to what the for-profit sector is doing in terms of marketing, 
um, and adopt a lot of it sooner rather than, than later. Um, you know, one of the things that, that not to go off on a tangent, but one of the things that I've been paying a lot of attention to in the last several years is this whole notion of influencer marketing, which the for-profit sector has embraced um, completely, I would say, and has so for a while, nonprofits think that that's not something that they can use when in fact they absolutely can use it and it can fit very nicely with their limited budgets to do something that is really important and powerful. And as the data continues to show how many of the younger generation are influenced in their decisions by influencers, um, to not pay attention to that immediately seems, seems foolish. And so I think we need to pay as much attention to the business side of our organizations as we do our mission side so that we ensure that we have the sound infrastructure and tools to continue to deliver on the, the mission side. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, and actually one of my next guests, Ben Ryder from Beat the Streets National, um, he's one of the few executive directors at, at the national level that I've seen that have embraced this influencer approach. He actually had Dustin Poirier, who was a MMA champion, um, donate to Beat the Streets through the Good Fight Foundation, and they were able to kind of promote it mutually. But outside of that, I don't think I've really seen um, any other kind of key influencers in, in the space. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of goodwill that comes for it from it for the influencers and as well as Absolutely. for the nonprofits itself. So it seems like a huge opportunity. I, I, I agree. And, um, you know, I am not an expert in this field by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the, the reading that I've been doing also shows the power of micro influencers. Mm. Um, so who have a much smaller fan base, if you will, follower base. And so even at that level, um, I think there is, is, I think there's power to be had um, in a relatively easy way. But that's cool that, that um, he's going to be a guest. <laughs> yeah. You can ask him about it. I, I certainly it. will. Uh, he's an MMA fighter himself. He's like, um, gosh, he's like an angel that can like also crush you with his bare hands. It's <laughs> I don't okay. know how else to put it. He's you talk to him. I'm not talking to him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, you know, uh, talking about impact and like measurement uh, is also a huge facet of something that my team has been focused on and we see as another part, like another step as part of this professionalization that of course the sector has had its eyes on forever, um, nonprofit impact measurement. So, you know, evaluating the actual difference between like the work that's happening on the ground and the the outcomes that it's driving seems to continue to be a major challenge for nonprofits. Can you can you tell us about your experience and your perspective around nonprofit impact evaluation as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's interesting because impact evaluation is near and dear to my heart. It was one of my um, early careers in in the sector. Um, and what, what is interesting is that, um, it, it impact evaluation has ridden a roller coaster in the nonprofit sector, and it has to, for a 
to a very great extent, been driven by, by funders. And so my first job um, in evaluation where I learned um, after graduate school to, to do real evaluation um, was because the, um, was to do evaluations of federally funded criminal justice programs. Um, and so funders at that time, and I had just finished working for the Ford Foundation, funders at that time were requiring independent impact evaluation of their programs and paying for it. Um, and that was the key difference. They were demanding that there be an outside independent evaluator. And as part of the grant to the organizations, they gave money to pay for that. Um, and that was back in the um, 70s. And so we were riding this, this roller coaster and then it dropped off and funders weren't interested and foolish nonprofits didn't understand the power of impact evaluation. So if the funders weren't interested in it, they weren't doing it. And then somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s, it really was the early 90s, funders started getting interested in it again and started talking about it and requiring it, but not paying for it. So the challenge then was, this is something that donors want. We have to do it. We don't know how to pay for it. We don't have the in-house expertise. What are we going to do? And so... There has been, and, and so just to continue the roller coaster, we're no longer on the roller coaster. Um, it has been pretty much a very steady, um, you know, climb. And then we've plateaued where funders want it, um, but aren't paying for it. So nonprofits have to figure out how they're going to pay for it themselves. There is a, there has been, I should say, and there still is. Uh, a misunderstanding about what impact evaluation is so that so many people think it's the bean counting um, and don't understand that it's about, are your programs making the difference that you say they are making? The smart savvy nonprofits have come to understand the importance of impact evaluation and are no longer fighting the need to do it. They're still struggling many of them to find the capacity in-house or outsourcing it to do it but they recognize the importance of it um, in terms of keeping funders happy, which is sad because impact evaluation, the real true benefit of impact evaluation is how do we improve the programs to make sure they're doing the best job they possibly can to deliver on the, the promised impact. Um, and so until folks really understand that doing impact evaluation is for them and not the funder. It's serendipitous that they have that data for the funder. Um, the, we'll never really, really maximize the benefit and the use of impact evaluation. You know, I have a question that I ask in one of the classes that I teach in the master's program um, where I ask students whether it's ethical to continue to do a program or provide a service without having impact evaluation data. Is it ethical to continue to say, participate in this program and your kids will improve their reading scores by you know, three grades if you don't know whether in fact that happens from participation in your program? Um, and so I think organizations need to understand that this isn't just something you do to keep funders happy and keep the money rolling in, 
there is this whole ethical question, as well as knowing whether in fact you're doing what you say you're doing and are there things that can be done better um, so that you're having even greater impact. Mm. That's really fascinating. And I, I think there's an intersection between kind of the, what you were saying about the professionalization of nonprofits in this equation here, because in the business world, it's very common to have these very rigorous scorecards and metrics and be measuring things month over month, year over year, and then doing root cause analyses to understand why things aren't going the way and implementing continuous improvement. But as you said, capacity is, of course, one of the bigger constraints here. And you also mentioned impact measurement largely is like around like counting of sorts, like, oh, we planted this many trees or we, you know, served soup to this many people. Um, what do you think is the more meaningful metric? Like, how do you get past the surface of just counting what is on the surface to a more deeper level of impact and outcomes? And I understand that this is a tough question because it looks different for every nonprofit and right. their mission, but just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, like impact measurement going from the status quo of that to something more meaningful. So it has to do with how you have conceptualized the program, whether you've conceptualized it as backwards or whether you've conceptualized it properly. Too many times organizations say, oh, you know what would be cool to do? Let's do this. Instead of saying, what is the need? What's the problem? What, are we, what do we want to change? What do we want a solution to be? and then design the program to achieve that solution. Why do we plant trees? We don't plant trees for the sake of planting trees. We plant trees to, you know, uh, oh boy, why did you have to use that example? <laughs> um, to you know, to reduce the, the bad stuff in the air. I exactly. sound like a brilliant person, but we, <laughs> we plant trees to produce shade, to keep temperature down. We plant trees because of, you know, what they put back into the environment. We plant trees to prevent erosion. Um, and so that's what we should be measuring. Have we reduced the temperature in the urban areas by planting trees? Have we prevented erosion, you know, in this hillside? because we don't plant the trees simply for the plant of planting the trees. And having planted 100 trees tells us nothing about did we achieve the goals of why we were planting the trees in the first place. I we need that. to get to that point. Did we reduce the temperature? Did we reduce erosion? Um, you know, is the air quality better, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and, and as you were saying that, something clicked for me. It's, um, it seems like the status quo is focused on measuring activity instead yes. of outcomes. And right. uh, there's a difference there. Total difference. And that's why we talk about, you know, so many people think that's what the phrase I use is beam counting. You, you use a much more sophisticated term, the activity. You know, so what if a hundred people came to, you know, your soup kitchen? Is your goal simply to give people a meal now? Or are you using food as a vehicle to get them stronger, healthier so that they can do the next step? Um, you know, it's great that X number of people came to your homeless shelter, but are you, is the sole purpose of your organization, the band-aid of giving them a safe place and, and warm place to sleep or to help them have a good night's sleep so that they can attend the job training class so that they can then look for a job and then they can start 
having a paycheck and they can get a permanent place to live. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, there are nonprofits whose, whose mission um, appears to be band-aids only. Um, and then maybe bean counting works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was going to say like, is there something wrong with that? Probably no, like that's, we need those services. And, uh, I think the question that you're drawing into the lens here is making sure that impact measurement is truly aligned with what your organization's mission yes. is. If your mission is to provide temporary relief and shelter, that's great. Uh, align your metrics with that. If yes. it's around holistic services to get people back into the world, whatever that is, right. that's great. Like align your metrics with that. And you said it at the beginning of the, of the question, you know, impact evaluation has to be customized to that mission, to the programs, to the goals that you created. Not every, you know, after school program has the same goals. Not every English as a second language necessarily has the same goals. You know, so even though there are multiple organizations that operate in the same um, mission category, uh, that doesn't mean that they're going about those mission promises in the same way. And so this is part of the problem that, that evaluation has to be, impact evaluation has to be customized to the particulars of each organization. Yeah, and um, you know, to kind of move us to the next question, this ties into what you were saying around the roller coaster largely being dictated by donors around impact measurements. Yeah. A lot of what we've seen from our research, and there's books about this around donor-centric fundraising yes. as the current kind of way of fundraising, right? Like what can we do to make our, particularly our wealthy big check writers and grant writers board members feel good about what we're doing and maybe sometimes that's great and it works but sometimes maybe it's not in the best interest of the communities that these nonprofits are serving so what are your thoughts on this current state of donor-centric philanthropy and, and your thoughts on the shifts that may need to happen or that we might be moving towards you know, I, I sputtered earlier in, in our conversation and I said, and there may be another big change coming in the sector. And um, I, I'm hoping it's coming. How about if I put it that way? And that is in the, the service side of the sector, challenging the philanthropic side of the sector. We have been, and this has been to our detriment, no question about it, we have been a very subservient um, sector, the, the service side of the nonprofit sector. You know, funders are 501c3s, where many, most of us are 501c3s, not all of us, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, in that relationship between donors and providers, we have been very, very acquiescing, very, very subservient. And we haven't played to our strengths as the experts in the field. And so we have, without a doubt, allowed funders to dictate what we do, rather than to take the risk of not getting the funds and push back on the donors and say, 
know this is what is needed as an organization that has worked in this field for the last 50 years, we know this as an organization closely tied to the needs and wants of our clients, this is what is, is needed. Um, you know, one of the, the things that has happened as a, as a result of George Floyd and the whole just social justice um, lens that is being really, really lowered um, is this whole questioning of the, the injustice of our current philanthropy system. Um, and that it is guided mostly by, um, you know, white privilege. And does that white privilege understand what is needed? And are we as nonprofits um, doing our clients a huge disservice by kowtowing to that? And I'm hoping that this disruption comes and that we move away from that donor-centric model and we truly, truly make it a a partnership. We're the experts. We bring to you what we know is needed. Yes, it's your money. You can pick and choose what you want to fund, but we're not going to say, oh, you have that idea. Oh, what a nice idea. Oh, you're going to give us money. Oh, we'll do that if that isn't what our clients need. Um, but it's a risk taking in the eyes of a lot of nonprofits who are so used to saying, how high do you want me to jump to the funders rather than pushing back? Did I answer your question at all? Yeah, absolutely. And okay. I, there's so much to unpack there. And I, I think it gives a good, broad, and, and, and enough, of, enough of a jumping point for people to kind of examine some of those areas of why we are where we are with donor-centric fundraising. And, you know, I, I think you're 100% right about nonprofits being in this position of subserviency to especially these large check writers yeah. you know one of the things that we've learned throughout our discovery is that the funding sources for many nonprofits is very undiversified it is yes. coming from like a very small number of people and like we all like to think that our 10 or 20 dollar or 100 dollar donation to your mom and pop uh, nonprofit is making a big difference. And uh, yes, yes, it does. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's like a small spare change for, for, you know, in the grand scheme of these, uh, wealthy donors coming in. And, you know, I'd love to live in a world where communities are truly funding, uh, nonprofits where that fundraising is balanced and reflective of the communities that they serve and not just coming from this handful of individuals. You know, I mean, that is the theoretical model of a community foundation, that the money is given locally to local organizations, and that it, it really is that notion of the community taking care of itself. Um, and unfortunately, as um, a lot of community foundations have grown and become really big, I think a lot of them have lost their their community roots. There are a tremendous number of really great community foundations that really, really do work about raising money from within the community to give back to the community. Um, but um, there are some who have lost their, their way. I think the other thing is that, is that when you become beholden um, to a couple of key donors, um, you know, in addition to letting them lead, um, 
another problem is happening, which is the donors have in to a certain extent pushed a lot of the mergers that we've seen so that we're building bigger and bigger nonprofits. And um, my fear has always been is that when nonprofits get too big, they get too far away from their clients um, and they don't understand their clients the way that community-based nonprofits do. And um, that, that worries me too, because in our society, bigger is presumed to always be better. And so many of the big check writers come out of big corporate backgrounds and have bought into this notion that bigger is better. Um, there is a push to create bigger and to do away with the, the smaller. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of nonprofits that, that shouldn't exist because they just aren't solid entities. Um, but there is a lot of the work that nonprofits do that, that I firmly believe is best done at that community-based level, at that grassroots level. And if, non, if, if donors aren't interested in supporting those organizations, then we run the risk of having these impersonal nonprofits that don't understand their client base the way the closer to the ground ones do. Mm. And that to me is a real risk with donor-centric <clears throat> fundraising. That's interesting because I, I think we, Laura, talked about the difference in impact on the individual depending on like how like the large that nonprofit is, right? Like if I think you gave an example of a nonprofit that's based in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Can you can you just talk about like that one and then we can draw zoom out and kind of like yeah. draw a difference there? So so this um, nonprofit is um, uh, it's an anti-poverty uh, nonprofit and it has a phenomenal program that takes individuals from uh, homelessness and um, joblessness and uh, turns them into homeowners, em employed homeowners. Um, and it has wonderful, wonderful connections. It set up um, partnerships with a couple of educational programs there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it has a terrific, terrific outcome. So their, their impact is phenomenal. The challenge they face, however, is they only work with a cohort of about 20 at a time. And funders want big impact and 20 isn't big. Even if 19 of them end up two years after completing all of the programs and support are employed and in their own homes, even if that's a rental, but they have their own home, um, they're not interested in, in funding that. And this is a program that in addition to having the professional staff, um, they also have part, they find partners for each of the individual or families that they're working with in the community. So they have people living in that community who are also helping them and supporting them and, you know, inviting them over for the holidays and, and doing other things that you would do with friends and family. So they have both the professional and they have the lay, but it is all the community that is supporting them. But in funders' eyes, even though this program is terrifically successful, it comes down to being only, quote unquote, 20 people. Mm. You know, 
at 19 out of 20, and I, I'm, I don't know what their latest figures are, so that's not a direct quote, but 19 people who move out of unemployment and homelessness, um, you know, and, and then pay it forward. I, I think that's a pretty good return on my investment. Right. So then, you know, thinking about this from a, a systems perspective and different sizes of and, and intensities of focuses of nonprofits, it seems like there's this trend of, like you said, the bigger you get, like the less personal, like, yes, you may be um, kind of moving more people through uh, a process or, or through a beneficiary kind of outcome, but the outcomes often aren't as potent as they could be when you're focusing in as a smaller entity on a much smaller group of individuals. And so like striking this balance and understanding how to connect the dots between these organizations that are on the ground and then educating donors on the differences and the necessities between both that big nonprofit and the one on the ground, I think uh, it's certainly something that I'm wrapping my head around still. And I know that um, many donors out there could also uh, benefit from that kind of illustration and understanding within their own communities. You know, I, I think we get so caught up as a society in names, in brands, if you will, that we don't look beyond that at what the organizations are truly giving. So one of the things that has always bothered me is that whenever, whenever there is a disaster, all of the media outlets immediately start telling people to send money to the American Red Cross. I am not dissing the Red Cross. Um, but what we know is if you talk to the people on the ground in the disaster, what they want you to do is send the money to the local people on the ground who know what is really, really needed so that we don't have warehouses full of diapers that, that aren't needed at that point in the disaster. But because everybody knows the name Red Cross, um, people automatically trust in the Red Cross without ever having looked at their impact data, without ever having looked at you know, how are they using their, their money? And um, to me, to, to give your money to a name without knowing what that name does, to give your money to any organization without knowing, is it making that promised impact? Um, is it providing the services and the programs that are needed is a waste of your money. And, um, this goes back to why impact evaluation is so important, but it is also why knowing what the people on the ground know and how they've learned it and how they're serving and their connection to the people they're being served is really, really important. Mm. I don't know if all that made sense or not. It, it does. And, and I think it's hopefully a, another step that we're moving towards with this new generation of donors stepping in that, you know, have entered the workforce and have realized that, you know, oftentimes time is more valuable than money. And we're questioning things like well-being and uh, yeah. wanting more out of life than this kind of traditional model that we were kind of brought into. And s similar 
in, in, in the charitable space, I think I've, at least I've seen a lot of donors wanting, wanting to understand the organizations around them, wanting to learn about what are the options beyond like the big brand names and what's going on in my community and how can I be more involved, especially with, uh, everything that's happened with, with social justice, it's left a generation of us crippled wondering what the hell are we supposed to, how can we be helpful? Uh, you know, and how can we be part of a, a bigger change? And so I, I think it's ripe for disruption in a positive way with uh, this new, you know, era of, of donors wanting to actually be part of a difference instead of looking for a tax write-off. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I love about millennials is they they want to be much more involved where they give than than my generation wanted to be involved. You know, my generation was much more willing to write the check for those of us who weren't working in the sector, um, much more willing to, to write the check, but didn't necessarily want to get their hands dirty. Many of them are getting their hands dirty now in retirement, but they didn't want that as they were, you know, growing up and they certainly didn't want that as their job. The data on millennials shows that they like and want to be involved where they give. And do, to your point, recognize the value of, of time. And I think that's wonderful because they'll know whether an organization, they'll very quickly know whether an organization is worth their time and their money or, or not. And, um, you know, they can see in a way a level of impact that you can't see if you never visit the place that you're supporting, if you never see the mission in action. Well, as a, as this podcast host, my job is also to to ask some tough questions and uh -oh. to bring up some con like potential. I don't know. I feel like this for me, this question is is certainly a hot take. But I want to throw it at you. So uh -oh. the the hot take is that the nonprofit sector as a whole is just treating symptoms and fighting fires versus actually addressing some of the root causes of some of our biggest systemic issues. And I, I think it's a hot take because yes, you you still need these, as you said, like the band-aids and like the recovery and like the firefighters out there. But the question then becomes, and I know this is a very complex issue, is like how do we how do we move, how do we move nonprofits and organizations and you know <laughs> from from this space of addressing these symptoms to being part of a solution towards addressing root causes of some of the biggest challenges that we have in the world? Um, <laughs> it, it's a tough question, but it's one that we absolutely do need to, to grapple with. I think, there, I think there are too many folks who think that what they're doing is addressing root causes when they are just putting Band-Aids on it. And so I think we need to get clearer, get a clearer understanding of when you are, um, you know, making life comfortable for people now versus what are we doing to create a world where what those folks are experiencing never has to be experiencing. Um, uh, Andrew Carnegie had a wonderful, wonderful quote in um, his gospel that I'm not gonna come up with, but it, it's viewed as very critical because he ad, admonishes donors 
not to give money to perpetuate the very behavior that they're trying to stop. And, um, you know, it suggests that Band-Aids are, are bad because we're allowing people to continue to suffer from whatever they're suffering. Um, as long as we're going to feed them, then they don't have to worry about how they're going to feed themselves. And um, we have spent a lot of our time over the, the many centuries doing just that, taking care of people in the moment instead of figuring out how that moment doesn't have to happen again for anybody else. The, 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 the challenge is, and let's see if I can say this clearly, the, the challenge is, you know, we'd almost have to become dictatorial and say, you guys over here in this lane, you're the Band-Aids, and you guys over here, you've got to address the root causes. And, and how are we gonna do that? Are we gonna do it you know, little by little by little, like the Bucks County organization? Or are we going to try to do it on a more massive scale? Um, and I think it depends on what the, the problem is. And you know what? What is the social problem that we're trying to to correct? Um, you know, and and to recognize, and and here's where I'm going to tie it back into the donors to recognize that solving root causes is not a, a three year or a five year, whatever the grant cycle is. It is a a multi decade process that needs to have the consistent money coming in and the guarantee that that money is going to be here. You know, one of the things that we experience every time there's a new crisis, whether it's the recession, whether it's a pandemic, is funders shift. And here I'm talking about organized funders and those big donors as well. They shift what they're going to fund. And so here you are going down this path and all of a sudden funders say, nope, we're not funding any of that now. We're gonna take all of our grant money and we're gonna help people who are suffering from the pandemic. Great, we need that. But you know, you're now gonna take my $350,000 a year, my 1.5 million or 5 million that you were giving me to address this social problem and to find how we can you know, eviscerate it. Now you're pulling the, the plug on me. We can't, we can't solve problems if the source of the income for, for doing the necessary work is, is um, uncertain. Mm. And, and that's, that's the challenge. Those yeah. are the challenges. I think there are multiple challenges in what I just said. Yeah, and you know, I think the, the other thing that you've, you've taught me is that there is a public perception that the onus for solving these systemic systemic issues is on nonprofits, which is just completely absurd to think that it's just this one sector's role, right? Like if 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 homelessness is still an issue, it's like, oh well, what are nonprofits doing about it? You know, like on my whiteboard, I was thinking about well, we say like at Match Nice, we're like, oh, we want to connect the nonprofit ecosystem. We're like, well, what what is that even? Like, what is the ecosystem? And you know, the way we drew it out was nonprofits. Yes, they're a big component of that. But then you've also got government, 
right? Like how is government subsidizing and promoting policies and legislation and, uh, you know, everything around uh, our communities to address these issues. And then businesses, businesses are, are a huge part of this, right? Like every company that I've worked for has had some level of a kind of philanthropic angle or like agenda around promoting social welfare. And then within all of that, like the, the, the kind of, the, the thread that ties all that is the communities, right? Like the communities that we're working in. So it's, um, I, I just wanted to emphasize for our, for our nonprofit listeners, like it isn't just <laughs> like the, the, the nonprofits out there. And I know that's not what you're saying, but um, it's been something that you've opened my eyes to in looking at this massive question, this big problem. And I'm like, what is the solution? And, you know, I think it's a, a collective approach that's needed. Absolutely right. There's no question about it. I have oftentimes felt very um, uh, envious of of Pittsburgh um, because it has historically, um, ever since it started, you know, ever since it needed to address its problems, come together those three sectors: government, business, and nonprofits to work collaboratively to solve the problems that Pittsburgh was facing, you know, the, the pollution and the decline and the unemployment. And they've turned Pittsburgh, you know, into this wonderful, wonderful place. And I've always felt quite envious being here in Philadelphia where that doesn't happen. The, the you know, those three pillars, government, for-profit and nonprofit, don't work together um, on a regular basis. And when it does happen, it's because, you know, individuals have done it as opposed to it being, if you will, the ethos of the city of Pittsburgh. It's not the ethos of, of so many cities. I don't mean to just damn Philadelphia. I mean, it's just not what happens in, in most cities. It certainly hasn't happened in any of the three cities that I've lived in. And I've lived in three major cities. Um, but, um, you know, it can happen and it needs to happen. And that goes back to, we can do it at the community level. You know, we can even do it at a neighborhood level, but, but um, we can definitely do it in the, at the community level, pull yeah. together those three pillars and make them work. Um, but they have to want to. <laughs> right. And and thus we come back to the challenge around levels of magnification. The the higher up you go, the more diffuse impact and and, and yep. action seems to be. And so bringing this back to action, Laura, what's the one thing you would change about how we as individuals and as a society as a whole go about trying to affect positive social change in the world? Could you ask me a, a bigger question, please? I mean, that one's just too easy to answer. Um, um, I don't have an answer for that. I, you know, my immediate answer is what, what we've already said. I think it has to be from the ground up, not the top down. And that's where I put the power in the community. Um, you know, I have always been a huge, huge fan to go back to what I mentioned before of community foundations and actually got was one of the founding members of a community foundation in the county that I currently live in. Um, because it is a way, good community foundations 
educate the people of the community about the needs of the community and don't allow those of privilege to live in their privilege without knowing what's going on around them. And um, I think, you know, if, if we, I, I just think that the power at this point in time, and, and I'm feeling a little jaded about um, uh, our political systems right now. And I say this as a person who grew up in DC, I'm a native Washingtonian, grew up in the, the midst of, of all those politics and believed back then about the, in the, the goodness of our political system and of our politicians. I don't have that now. So I'm giving you that as my jaded view, um, but I do still believe in the power of the grassroots community um, for us to take care of our neighbors and our, our fellow communities. And I think, um, you know, if you haven't, if, if people aren't involved with their local community foundation, I would really encourage people to reach out to and get to know their community foundation. And I hope that it's a good community foundation um, and see how they, how, how they can get involved at the community level and not to be blinded by the names of, of organizations, but to, to look at their, at their locals. I love that. You said you didn't have an answer, but that sounded like a really good answer to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not solving the problems of the world, Puya, and I want to solve the problems of the don't, world. Don't we all? You know, um, when I was wrestling with what can I do to affect positive change after George Floyd and like everything was up in the air, after months of just wrestling with and learning and educating myself, what I came down to was I can be a nice person. I can smile at that person crossing crossing the street from me. I can buy that stranger a cup of coffee. I can just wholesomely be a per, like a person as best as I can, and and be educated and be involved. And you know, um, but what you're pointing to is another step. Like, oh, I, I could look and look about like the community foundation in my or neighborhood. Like, what are they doing? Like, what are the issues in my community? Yeah. And how can I take a step further than like buying that cup of coffee and actually be affecting change in, in, in a more meaningful way? One more question for you. Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be? What, <laughs> and what do you need to make that legacy come true? Wow. Um, uh, what do I want my legacy to be? Can I, can I, um, can I do this as a cop-out and say, I know what my legacy is. It's one incredibly wonderful, smart, compassionate human being um, who I know will carry on my passion for um, helping others and for strengthening the nonprofit sector, even though he doesn't work in the nonprofit sector. Can I make that my legacy? <laughs> Accepted. <laughs> um, well, Laura, thank you so much for joining. This was a blast. Thanks for being our first My guest. There's My pleasure. Lot. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank I think you. I I think I kind of copped out on that um, uh, last question, but um, uh, um, yeah, I uh, 
No, I could, I could also say I want my legacy to be all the people who come through the master's program that I teach out there, changing the strengthening and changing the nonprofit sector to make it even better than it has been. Um, I could say that, you know, the more I talk to people who don't know much about the nonprofit sector, I want my legacy to be a better lay public, a better, a lay public that is better educated about the nonprofit sector so that they understand the reality and not the myths. Um, so I could have lots of, of answers, but I actually do think my best legacy is that young man. <laughs> You're all too kind. Um, wow. There's so much to unpack here and so much valuable insight from this conversation that I'll surely be marinating over. And I think it's going to springboard into many more questions that I'll get to ask other leaders, nonprofit leaders um, working in the space and outside the space. So Laura, I want to thank you so much for your time and for everything that you've done throughout your life and career to positively affect social change in our world. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you for all that you're doing too. Always a pleasure, Puya. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Hey, welcome to the show, Madeline and Ibrahim, my COO and CTO. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Happy to be back. <laughs> Happy to doing pretty you. good. Well, um, the spirit of this segment of the podcast is really kind of following suit of how I would lead human-centered design focus groups, right? Like we, ha we would have a conversation with someone we're working to serve or learning from, and then the team that's working to build a solution for those people connects afterwards. And we have a discussion about what we heard, what was inspiring, what, we, you know, what was uh, new to us, what surprised us potentially, what did we hear that we knew before, and what other questions have come up for us. So um, I really loved this conversation with Dr. Laura Otten. As you guys know, she's been there for us from day one. What'd you guys think of the conversation? I have so many uh, things that I got out of this conversation, but my overall take was just, wow, she's so amazing, so knowledgeable. And every single time we have a conversation with her, I learn so much. It's really cool to see like her experience come into play when it comes to like how things were before, how things are now, and then her understanding of how things have transitioned and where we can take advantage of the technology and the opportunities that we have today to further enhance the nonprofit experience overall. Yeah, I think one of the more kind of insightful things from that conversation was just thinking about the history of nonprofits through the lens of professionalization as being one of the biggest kind of changes. What came up for you guys as you were thinking about that segment? One of the key things I heard her mention was a nonprofit is a business. It's just a mission-driven business. Um, and that's kind of become more normalized. I remember her mentioning that like it used to be a question mark. And now when you tell people, it's it's it makes sense. Like a nonprofit is a mission-driven business. Sure, capital is needed, but that capital is needed to further engage in supporting the mission that the nonprofit itself is trying to support. Yeah, the, the professionalization history was really interesting. I didn't realize how recent that was. And I think I knew that the story about, you know, wives and, and women kind of working in nonprofit 
with their free time, but I didn't realize that it was such a hard line between that time and the professionalization time. Um, and I had the same reaction too about NPOs being mission-driven businesses. It's one of those things where I just hear someone say it a certain way and I'm like, yes, that's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I just never thought of it that way, but that's totally what it is. Um, another thing that just stood out to me as, and was something that surprised me too, was I didn't realize that impact measurement was originally kind of paid for or fronted by donors to begin with. And when donors kind of lost interest in um, the impact measurement, so did nonprofits. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and, it's, and it's especially interesting how it's taking such a different, or, or I guess a new upswing now and how important that impact measurement is. Um, the other thing that she that she mentioned was the question that she asks her classes about, is it ethical to keep providing a service without evaluating the impact? That was major, like that was so, so interesting to me. And it tied right back to what we talk about all the time, which is, um, especially with my background in marketing and stuff like that is, you know, what's more important, the clicks or the sales, right? What's kind of good getting back to what's the ultimate mission here? Um, are we just trying to show numbers and activity or are we trying to push a different needle, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, that was one of the more powerful points for me too. I, I like the analogy used with, with sales and clicks because it, you know, like the work that's being done isn't really negated what by whether or not a nonprofit is super proficient at measuring their impact but it's it's nonetheless really important and one of my other takeaways around that whole bit was that whether impact was being measured or not it was always still really important and for donors to have historically had this persuasion and influence and power over the actions of nonprofits and you know now that they've kind of stepped back in and said, hey, actually, we want that again. And the burden is on the nonprofits. And a large part of why impact measurement isn't such a common practice is because nonprofits are already so resource constrained and time constrained delivering on the ground that, you know, being able to come up with really smart metrics isn't exactly the number one priority for folks that are delivering on these missions. But I think this also brings back to like our mission as a company and what we're trying to do with this concept of impact centric measurement. Like you remember we were initially, we were like, it's all donor centric. Let's make something that's nonprofit centric. And then we actually came back away from that and said, wait, no, actually the right answer is something in the middle where both the nonprofit and the donor are coming together around the impact. And, you know, it's cool to kind of see the history of where we've been and be a part of hopefully driving towards this more equ equitable conversation and involvement and engagement between nonprofits and donors when it comes to impact. What else popped up for you guys throughout throughout that conversation? Anything else that was like affirming or surprising? A few of the, the things that I noted were her mention of the digital divide that existed and that became more obvious during the pandemic. And then on top of that, like a previous point that I made about her kind of noticing like the advantages and opportunities that are present in today's world, uh, influencer marketing being like a large area that nonprofits have not necessarily taken advantage of in the past, but that a lot of corporations have. 
and then seeing where that could transition over to a nonprofit supporting role. And then the, the last point was community foundations and the roles that they play. But I feel like we could definitely save that for a conversation later in this in this chat. I think when people think about influencers, or at least some people think about influencers, they're thinking of the original influencers of people who were really big or really big names and everybody knows them or they sponsor huge brands or whatever it is. Um, And of course, those people can be really helpful in sharing your message. But I think we've gotten to a point where almost anyone can be an influencer. There, you know, there's so many different niches of interest and perfect combinations of people's interests um, that you don't need to have a giant following to be influential. Um, So I think there's so much to take advantage of there in terms of getting your message out, especially because of her other comment about younger generations wanting to, you know, see the impact on the ground of what's going on um, at nonprofits. It's just, there's so much to do there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just looking at my own donation history this last year, I'd say like a quarter or a half of it was from seeing like one of my friend's moms like posting about donating to some cause that was important to them. And, you know, she she doesn't have millions of followers. She maybe has like a few hundred, but uh, it was enough to get me and, you know, oh, I know this person, I care about them and this cause, let me donate. And I think for us, and and as we're thinking about our roadmap at Match Nights, that means like peer-to-peer fundraising, right? Like that's got to be uh something something key and uh i like i like ibrahim as the cto that you brought up like the whole point around the digital divide as well because i think the way we're building our fundraising platform is really designed to meet nonprofits exactly where they are no matter how great or not great or if non-existent their websites uh may be so another thing too that dr otten talked about a lot was coming back to impact reporting, a lot of times impact reporting or impact stories in general are not quantitative. They're more qualitative or they're more intangible. And I think that's something that we've heard a lot in our research. And part of the reason why what we built into our platform is really kind of broad questions about impact that can capture what the impact it can it can capture answers to those questions that can apply to any nonprofit because it's so it's so specific um, for nonprofits to be able to you know what what you what my metric is as nonprofit A is going to be completely different from a driving metric for nonprofit B. So so we've definitely built that kind of intangible impact into what we're trying to do um, to capture it for everybody. Yeah, and you know like. In, in that conversation kind of had an epiphany about like the status quo around impact measurement is really currently all focused about like measuring activity, right? Like, you know, we served this many people or we planted this many trees, but like the big question that's still left unanswered and is really difficult to get to, I think it's something for us to think about how we can support through through our company is like how do we measure the outcomes? And that's really hard. That's gonna be really hard because there's so many other factors than just this one bowl of soup that was provided or this one tree. It's, it's this concept of the ecosystem coming together. And so, you know, I think that's it's a challenge that inspires me. And I don't know what the right answer is right now, but I think that we're going in the right direction with kind of focusing on 
initiative level, like impact and measuring progress and not just activities. Yeah, the progress part of it is so important too. I was tying that progress aspect back to when Dr. Otten was talking about how uh, nonprofits can't do their work or accomplish their missions in the in the time frame of a grant cycle was the was the example that she gave, and I think it just brings back to reframing the updates and the impact around progress as opposed to like we solved world hunger, we're done, you know, year one and we're finished, you know, it's going to take a longer time than that to really move the needle on anything. And I think it's, it's just important from a transparency standpoint for, like you were saying, nonprofits and for donors to kind of strap in for the long haul. (laughs) Totally. Eve, you mentioned also uh, like a point around community foundations, we should absolutely get some, you know, a leader from a a large community foundation on the podcast. So we can we can kind of get their perspective on the whole space. But what what was uh, what was the notes that you got from that one? The biggest thing that stood out for me was Laura's identification of community foundations as playing the role of educating the community on what the needs of that community are. Because as much as everyone in the community understands like where there are pros and cons, there are some things that may be other like overlooked. And there are some things that people may just have a blind spot for. And the purpose of the community foundation is to ensure that all of these are identified and that people are taught like this is what needs to be fixed. This is what we need to work on. This is where we can improve to overall benefit the entire community as a whole. Yeah, we definitely have to do an episode on community foundations because, you know, just being relatively new to the nonprofit sector over the last handful of years, like it took me a while to even understand the role of a community foundation. And I think most people who donate may not even be aware of the community foundations in their communities and the, the roles they play. The example that she gave about the levels of magnification of impact and how you need that mom and pop like charity versus like the massive Red Cross organization. But the example she gave about like in these disaster situations, all the money going to these super large nonprofits. And that's how you can end up with a warehouse full of diapers when really what you need is like water or whatever the most urgent need is in the community. I think there's a lot to be said about the opportunity for for us to help help promote the importance of, of community foundations and, and also for our company to think about connecting the dots between, you know, we're starting with donors and nonprofits, but looking at community foundations as part of that mix as well. That was a huge thing for me too, when the story about the Red Cross and also about the nonprofit in Bucks County, the smaller nonprofit that, you know, had had the impact of one, right? Or or their small group of 20 that they were working with. I mean, two points on that. One is that with the Red Cross story, um, we've come across this in our research and it's something that, you know, I, I aspire to have matched and I solve for this problem. But Thinking about mutual aid groups or people that are working on, you know, solving problems on the ground, especially in emergency situations where they don't necessarily have an EIN number or something that kind of makes them an official nonprofit. And just raising that question of why is it that we as a society or as donors don't necessarily sometimes trust those organizations as much as we would with giving our money to the Red Cross. So there's some retelling of stories there that needs to happen. And then on the Bucks County 
nonprofit side, that just was, oh, like what an amazing and, and heart-wrenching story of, of just hearing about the amazing impact that they had, but just the numbers, right? Going back to that numbers reporting thing that I, I had in my notes, like, how do you not fund that? How do you not fund this amazing impact that they were having um, just because their numbers were small? I think it also speaks to our larger mission for Match Nice, which is we don't want to necessarily have nonprofits all merging together uh, that are all working on similar uh, missions. We want to foster those partnerships um, because everyone does have, you know, even if you're working to uh, help people, you know, get their own homes, one nonprofit's going to do it differently from another, is going to do it differently from another. And it's better to work together in your own lanes sometimes as opposed to just merging all together because everybody's approaching it from a different way. So, yeah, I think another opportunity for us there is you know, how can we create the connections for donors to become educated about these smaller nonprofits in their communities? You know, there are charity navigators and uh, some of the big players out there like Candid that, you know, you can do a search and you get all the, these stats, but oftentimes it still feels like you're reading like a credit report of sorts and you're like what does this really mean and like what are they doing here <laughs> so you know i think that's another big opportunity for us to, to consider coming out of this um what what else any other general like big takeaways for you guys from from this session before we look to wrap up our debrief I had one more um, just about something that is uh, near and dear to my heart, which is long-term thinking and root cause and solving for the long-term problem as opposed to just band-aiding. There was a lot of conversation about that. And I just, every time you guys were talking about it, I was just like, yes, yes, yes. Because if your mission is to provide meals for people as, as more of a band-aid to you know hunger, then that's great. If that's your mission, you should do that. But if your mission is to end hunger or to, you know, help people out of poverty, your metrics should be different. And the way that you design your programming should be different. And I loved what she said about, you know, are your activities just helping relieve the problem now, or are you helping relieve those problems forever? And I just thought that that was so powerful to me. And I think it comes back to, you know, the metrics conversation about, having your metrics align with your mission, even if it's just one metric, right? It, it'll kind of guide everything else that you do. Yeah, and you know, I think the other kind of takeaway from me on that, and I'm so glad you brought that up before we close, was that we need all of that. We need every level of magnification out there for driving impact. The person that is you know, serving that bowl of soup to the homeless, to the person that is lobbying our federal and state and local governments for more equitable housing, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's it's really going from the like on the streets to like what I see is like to Capitol Hill uh, in terms of driving policy. And, you know, I think that's part of our vision for our company too is, you know, get to a point where we can not just be funneling the capital to the nonprofits that are doing the work across all of these sectors, but to also have an influence eventually in the future on the policies that are in the best interest of nonprofits, donors, and, and, and our communities. Well, Madeline Ibrahim, it was a great first debrief on the podcast. 
so much so much taken taken away from this you know i think we've got our work cut out for us in terms of uh, how we can take action on this feedback from our own company roadmap but thank you so much for the great conversation and can't wait to have you guys back on the next episode of course i'm excited to to hear what our listeners think about what dr otten said um just really excited to keep the conversation going thanks malin thanks ibrahim wow what an episode what a first episode i'm pretty happy about how that went and there's so much to unpack and so much to digest from that conversation this kind of conversation is illustrative of the types of insights that we've been learning throughout our journey of discovery with match nice and every time i have one of these conversations there are so many more questions that come up and it's really exciting i'm i'm excited about the opportunity to continue to learn from different perspectives and to share that journey with you all. Tune in next time when I interview Ben Ryder from Beat the Streets National. He's a longtime executive director there and recently took over that Beat the Streets National position and has an incredible story around MMA and using his platform for good. I'm gonna try to end every episode on a quote that I think is appropriate for, for what we talked about. And given that we talked about the nonprofit landscape and where we were and where we're going, I found this quote by Maya Angelou. She said that, I have great respect for the past. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. I have respect for the past, but I'm a person of the moment. I'm here and I do my best to completely center at the place that I'm at, then I go forward to the next place. Thanks, Maya, for that one. Rest in peace. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please be sure to click like and subscribe and follow us on our socials. With that, thanks for joining, and I hope you have a great one.